I do thank you for the past couple of weeks. I know you've had a lot thrown at you uh, in terms of ethics. As, as you probably picked up on, it's a really vast study. The field touches everything. It's very hard to get away from the idea of ethics as you go through. One of the things I said in that first week that we were here was that the Bible itself is an ethical book. And what I mean by that is, is as you read through it, it informs how we live, but it also shapes the way we think about certain topics. And you can't turn on the nightly news and it not be an ethics issue that's going on. And we'll talk about one of those in just a little bit. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is, is we've been talking about just general ethics things. I think last week you talked about politics and citizenship and what that means. This week I'm going to be spending some time talking about the idea of vocation and work and how those things can be done as worship unto the Lord without it seeming like the only thing that you can do is go and preach all the time at, at, at church because that wouldn't make you a very good worker in some cases unless you're Eric and that's actually your, your, your job that you're supposed to do. But how do you do it? And so we want to talk about those things and I'll, I'll spend some time doing that. But I also want to just spend a minute in review because I don't want some of the bigger, larger topics that we've talked about over the past couple of weeks to get lost in the mix of talking about specific details. So I want to do just a real quick 30,000-foot survey of some of the things that we've talked about the previous weeks. That way, for some of you who haven't been here, um, can catch up so you know kind of the groundwork that we're looking at. And then for some of you who've been here, just be a reminder and a refresher for where it is that we're headed. And just give us an idea of what we're looking at. And so as we do that... To kind of paint the picture for work, I'm going to read um, one of those moral dilemma type stories that are always so fun to try to think through. And when you put it in your own context, how it would work for you to actually think through this. And so uh, the last time I was here, it was of serious nature. This one, it deals with work specifically. So let me read this. It says, you are the general manager of Cooper Furniture, a small furniture manufacturer in central Virginia. You recently sent your top sales representative to a business seminar that was also attended by the sales rep of your fiercest competitor, Acme Wood Products. You have been especially irritated with Acme lately because of something I'm doing that's echoing back. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Of the highly critical ads that it's been running. It is now the morning after the seminar. And your sales rep comes into your office and hands you an envelope. The sales rep explains that after the seminar, he found the envelope lying on the chair next to him. It belonged to the guy from Acme, he explained. You open the envelope and remove the contents. Glancing at the document, you see that it is a comprehensive outline of Acme's entire marketing plan for the upcoming year. The cover page is even marked confidential. The Acme guy must have forgot it and left it there, the sales rep confides. I wasn't sure whether I should open it. You immediately realize the significance of this accident. With knowledge of Acme's plans, you can exploit their weaknesses, adjust your marketing accordingly, and get the better of Acme once and for all. Another realization, however, leaves you uneasy. Even though you didn't buy or steal Acme's plan, is it ethical for you to read and use it? So suppose you are the general manager's pastor, how would you counsel? And what's the basis for which we would ask somebody to make that decision? What, what moral principles, standards, or virtues are at stake other than profit? There are other things going on other than making profit, and as a Christian we consider these things. So we ask ourselves, is the mindset that we have, what is morally permissible 
or is a mindset, what choice would represent the highest form of worship? And then what advice would you give? And so that's really the difficulty in Christian ethics is that we're asking the question, not just what is it that we're, what do we do? But when we get put in these certain circumstances, and it's not always this, you know, extraordinary, but sometimes this sort of thing happens. How do we deal with it? What are the ways that we approach it? How do we go about it? Where, where does the Bible fit into this? Where does what other business people say? Because there's ethics, biblical ethics. There's also business ethics or medical ethics, these other terms and phrases that we hear. How do all of those fit together and which one's more important than the others? And how do these things inform each other as we explore these things? And That's really the question that we're trying to ask, and that's why I wanted to do a bit of review because some of the answers to those questions are things that we've talked about previously, and I want to highlight that. The next slide is one that's a little bit more lighthearted, and it's if you know Dilbert, if you've ever read Dilbert cartoons, they typically capture the workplace pretty well, I think, and it's funny. But just to lighten it up from the last, it says, Martin, I discovered a deadly safety flaw in our product. Who should I inform? No one. The stock would plunge and we have massive layoffs. Your career could be ruined or would be ruined. But my negligence could cause the deaths of a dozen customers. The first dozen is always the hardest. Now, Dilbert's making light of something that probably takes place more often than we're willing to admit is, what corner can we cut? What are we willing to do? How much are we willing to maximize to make sure that profit takes place? Well, that's in a business setting or we start asking questions about, when I'm a teacher and there are tests that the state and that the federal government mandates. So when I go into my classroom, how do I teach? What do I teach? Do I teach to that test or do I teach to make sure that things um, are actually learned, even though the exams may not be that well and it may reflect poorly on me as a teacher? These things are ethical dilemmas that we ask as we go into work each day. And so we don't want to forget the fact that the Bible has something to say about this. Eric mentioned it just a minute ago. That the Bible informs all of life. Even if it doesn't tell you, you know, don't look at the other person's business plans. It doesn't say it like that. There are certain things that we draw from Scripture that helps us understand how we should actually formulate those things. And so just as a world, as a, as a review, one of the things that we're dealing with is having a biblical worldview. And this is something a couple weeks ago that I talked about, that a worldview is basically the lens by which you look at the world. How do I understand the world? How do I understand the things that are going around me? It's a bit like a pair of glasses. You may not need glasses, but if you're like me, I've got contacts in that everything looks fuzzy and doesn't make any sense at all to me in the morning until I put those contacts in. And then I can see. I can actually make sense of of the blurry images uh, that were my children running around the room. I can actually tell who's who. Or another way to describe it is a puzzle box top. If we were to give you all sorts of puzzle pieces and just lay them out on the table. You don't really know what to do. The first thing we do when we look at a puzzle is we look at the box top. And so a worldview is the box top. It's the picture that helps us to see what do we do with all these puzzle pieces. And a biblical worldview is one that says the Bible is what tells us how to see these things. The Bible is what makes sense of the world around us. The Bible is what puts the puzzle pieces in order for us. So as we go through this life, we're not left just trying to shove puzzle pieces together and wonder if they fit. The Bible helps to form how these things actually fit for us. And so the good news is everybody has a worldview. 
whether they know it or not, we have that, and this is a place where we can talk about ideas. That this is where we exchange ideas with one another. Another thing, just for review, we talked about the circle of moralism versus the circle of motivated holiness. And what you can see here is the circle represents the law. And typically we think of the law, even in biblical law, as something that has gone away or we don't want to deal with it or don't put new laws on me. But we know in the New Testament that Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen that if you love me, you will obey my commands. So there's obviously something that he expects and, and commands of us. And so we have the idea of law. And if we, look at the, if we look at the left side of the screen, you see that there's the law with ourselves in the middle. We're trying to figure out what we can do and how far we can push. And so we ask questions like, what are the rules? What's permissible? What can I get away with? What does the gospel allow? The other side though, kind of changes it a little bit. And it says, you know, actually... If the law is something that's come from God, it's something that God has commanded in the Old and the New Testaments, that Jesus still uses the idea of law as he commands us. Paul talks about law, and we're trying to understand what he means by that, but there are some sort of commands that still exist for us. Then those come from God, and if that's the case, when we change ourselves from the sinner and ask, how do we get to the law, we instead ask, if this is the heart of God, then how do we get in closer to that? So we are on the outside trying to figure out how do we get to the heart of God. So it changes it to questions like, what does my daddy want? What's the highest form of worship? To whom does the law point? Points to God himself. And so when we think about ethics, it's not about just finding the rules and keeping them. That's certainly an aspect of it. Like Jonathan said a couple weeks ago, that what we're after is, is rules, but rules for a certain virtue. We want to be like something. So if we want to be like Christ, we ought to know how he lived and what rules he lived by. And so it's the both. It's the rules and the virtue, the character, the the trait that we want to go after. It's both of those things. And so when we think about biblical ethics, we want to do away with the idea that the Bible is a is a rule book. It's something that we have to obey. It's it's just a list of rules and if we do those then we're okay and God owes us salvation or he owes us heaven we need to flip that around and say well because of god's gracious gift to us and salvation and the fact that we actually don't even deserve the life that we live but because of the gospel that we have life and we have the hope of eternal life what do you ask of me what what do you it's not too much to ask that i obey so it changes the question around when we understand the fullness of the gospel and so we wrestle with questions like this, and this is always the fun one, um, is stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. All right? So that's the kind of equation that we, that we look at and that we work on, and we think, so if I say that I believe something, but I do something different in practice, doesn't my practice actually tell me what I really believe? Okay, and the example I always use is speeding, and it always drives everybody crazy. So I'll use it one more time because I've already done it. So when we say we believe that God has given um, laws to, in Romans 13 tells us that our government is our authority and that we should submit to that and that the government does good laws to protect us. Um, Romans 13 bears that ability, uh, tells us that the government bears that ability, but... We don't like the speed limit. It's too low. So 
I try to find that balance of whatever it is that different states have, right? The, if I go five over, then they won't really give me the ticket. Or I'll go nine over on the expressway because state troopers don't really want to go after that. Or we just don't care. We're just going to speed. And then when you know, you're driving down the expressway on to vacation or work or whatever else, and you see all the red lights up in front of you and everybody's cars are leaning. You know, there's a policeman up under the bridge, right? So what do we actually believe? If we say we believe that the law is good and that God's given it to us, but we actually break it, what do we actually believe about the law? We believe it's okay to be broken. Now, the speeding one's a little bit easy, but when we, you know, because it's, and don't be mad at me, I'm sorry if you have to just drive the speed limit on the way home. But the, the idea is, why don't we speed? It's easier to lose control of the car. The ability for death takes place. Uh, lots of things can happen when you're speeding at a high rate. So there are reasons to have the law, but oftentimes we get caught up in the fact of our personal feelings towards it. But if we were to slide it into extreme cases like murder or um, tax fraud or these other things, um, people still do that, but we have a righteous anger towards that. We don't like it. But it's still a matter of obeying the law. So our stated belief plus our actual practice equals our actual belief. So this is why ethics is so important. This is why ethics matters. Because the way that we behave really says a lot about what we actually believe and what we believe about the one who's given us the commands and the rules by which to live. It says something about those things. And so we can't, we can't neglect that. If we as Christians bear the mark of Christ on us, we're willing to violate his commands and his instructions. And we're saying something about him. We're saying something about ourselves and our belief of what he says. And so this is why ethics is so important. This is why Eric's had us down is to talk about fun things like that. And, and just really set this up and say that all of life matters. There's no life outside of the purview in the eyes of God. There's nothing outside of the purview of Scripture that all of this touches If he's created this world, then he has something to say about it. So the goal of ethics then is really worship. It's really worship. We want to worship well. And so it asks the question, are we worshiping the right object? That's that's vitally important. Are we worshiping the right object? Are we worshiping the right object correctly, in the right way? So God has given ways in which we're supposed to respond to him, but... So we say we love God, but are we doing what He's asked us to do? Are we obeying His commands? Are we worshiping Him how we're supposed to? So that's, again, the question and goal of ethics is, are we worshiping God, the correct God, the one who's spoken in Scripture, or some other God? But are we doing it the way that He's prescribed as well? So it's a both-and question. So the Bible's not just a rule book. It's not always an easy answer to these questions. I wish it was. I was telling my friend on the way down here, Ethics is not for the lighthearted, okay? It's, it's not easy um, when you deal with some of the topics that are out there. Some of them, when you think about government and those things, but then everything that government touches and how to evaluate and think through those things, whether it be um, abortion or homosexuality or, um, you know, marriage and how that extends and then how we handle finances and other things, you can see that ethics is not always the easy subject very difficult to dig down and apply these things. And unfortunately, there are very few silver bullets, so to speak, in Scripture that just 
make it incredibly easy for us. A lot of times it's very difficult to measure through it. And so instead we measure things through verses like Matthew 22, 36 through 40, which says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in ethics, oftentimes we ask the question, how does this love God? And then how is this loving our neighbor? And Jesus answers the question in the story of the good Samaritan of who's our neighbor. Well, it's everybody. It's the person that lives next to you, but it's also the person sitting next to you, the person you pass on the expressway, whatever it is. So we have verses like that that we try to evaluate things through. Or we have verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so we see even from this verse that God cares what you eat and what you drink. Right? Even down to those little things. Everything, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so I just put up there the current Chick-fil-A debate. I mean, I doubt that's missed on anyone in the room of the major debate that's taken on there. Again, see, ethics, I get to get to come in and face that. And it's not so much the debate that I see that I think is hurtful is that homosexuality, that's oftentimes not the question. Defending First Amendment rights, that's not always necessarily the question. It's the spirit by which Christians act in the midst of that. That's an ethical question, right? As Adam said last week, that standing up for the Constitution, being a good citizen, being a part of the political act process, very much so. That's a part of what we should do as Christian citizens. Right? Should we stand against the practice of homosexuality? Absolutely we should. Does the Bible say that homosexuals not enter the kingdom of God? It sure does. It also says gluttony. It also says any sexual immorality, which if you look at that, if you were to look at the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus says, what lust equates to, that even having a thought of lust in your mind equates to the worst sexual immorality. So then, really, where does Scripture put all of us sinners in context? Right? We're all on the same plane. And so the homosexual and you sitting in the seats and me standing up here, in terms of our sin, unfortunately, we're here. So now we have to start asking different questions according to ethics, which is, how does the gospel speak to these things and where do we stand in light of the gospel? And being winsome is not calling horrific names to homosexuals. It's just not. Right? What would Jesus do in terms of those questions? Well, probably if we looked at Jesus, he probably would have had dinner with him. Maybe at Chick-fil-A, I don't know. Right? Because Jesus ate with who? The sinners and the tax collectors. Right? So when we think about how this fits in the Chick-fil-A debate, should we make a stand against sin in our world? Absolutely. But we should do it in a way to where Matthew informs it and says that we love God and we love our neighbor. A lot of that's got to do with not hurling insults, but instead loving them well unto Christ. That's the task of ethics. And that's what makes it really hard because when people sin against me and sin against my household or they sin publicly, I want to stand out against it publicly and loudly. This is why the Bible's tough, because it doesn't have silver bullets to always help me in all of those situations. But graciousness, love, and the gospel have to be a part of what we do. And this is why we say that the biblical worldview is the only thing that makes sense of the world. 
Because if we try to make sense of it ourselves, I'm angry and I'm yelling and I'm not pointing people to Christ. So that's a difficult task. So if you don't want to be in ethics, it's, it's uh, well, you're in ethics. Everybody's an ethicist. So um, you end up doing it one way or the other. And so my encouragement is this. As we review, as we talk about these things, as we begin to talk about work and why your work does matter to God, it matters ultimately because you say something about Him in every opportunity that you have, whether that's at work or whether that's at home, wherever that is. God's called you to a certain life. And in that life, He has expectations. And the primary expectation is that you make much of Him through Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. That that's what He's calling all of us to do. And that means we do our work well. That means that we love people well. That means we stand against sin and we proclaim it. But that we also do it winsomely, that we would point others to Jesus, not distract them away from it. Okay, so I do want to move into talking about vocation and work, but as we do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll begin to take a look at it a different idea. That's our background. Here's where we're headed in thinking through uh, work and vocation and what we're called to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, I'll admit that it's really hard to understand sometimes. Lord, I don't understand how all the laws fit together. I don't understand. I mean, I join with Peter in saying that some of what Paul writes is really hard to understand. And so I just pray that as we spend this next little time and see that our work matters to you, that you've called us to a life and a certain type of life, wherever we are, that we would learn to obey in response and love to you, the love that you've given us, that we would obey in response to that. And so I uh, just pray that in the next little bit we'll see that as you are at work and continually at work, that we are to join in that. And then, Lord, that you will bless those things so that we may see you glorified and honored and worshiped in all we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to make a distinction uh, real quick and just to say that I'm going to use two different words when we, when we think through this idea. The first of which is vocation. And vocation is just the English word that we translated from Latin that means calling. What is it that we're called to do? So that's vocation. So voca- vocation can tie into a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean work. In our culture, we typically put those things side by side and say my vocation is my work, where I go for employment and that I get paid. But that's not all that vocation is. Vocation could be um, your use of talents and gifts and any responsibilities that you may have. So an example would be um, you have the vocation of family. That's a vocation if we understand vocation in the, in the larger sense. And so the way that you are as a mother or father or son or as a daughter, that the way that you participate in that life is a part of your vocation, of the life that you're called to be a part of. Church would be a vocation. Participating in religious service would be vocation. Now, I separate that from the idea of work because it's a little bit different. Work is a part of the greater vocation, the larger picture of vocation. And so I just want to put that on the table. You would hear me say both of those things. So vocation is more than anything else, understanding that God has called us or assigned us to a specific life. And that as we participate in that life, that we are participating in our vocation and calling. We'll talk just briefly about how to find that, what that is if you're younger in life, how to figure out what your calling is. 
We know in anything else that it is something that God has called us to. So we have 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. It says, Only let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God has assigned us a certain life. Lead that life. Lead that life in contentment. And so that's, that's vocation. And so there are many things that we call vocation. Um, citizenship, wherever you are, artistry, craftsmanship, all these things show up in the Bible. And it's important to understand that God's call to each of these areas that we're assigned to these things by God. And then our part is participating and finding this. And so it's important to let the Bible speak to this. Um, an example that I give up there is this like work and family. Understanding how work, what I go to do to make money, and how that fits with family. These are these are all a part of a calling and a vocation, and they may be different. But we see that work helps provide for the family. So all of these vocations, these things that we're called to fit together. And so we have verses like 1 Timothy 5.8, which tells us that if we don't provide for our family members, that we're worse than unbelievers. Okay, So we go to work to not be worse than unbelievers. That's one of the motivations we have for work, is to provide for our families. And so God's very clear about that. So these vocations all work together. And so what we'll talk about tonight specifically is work itself. And so the way we're going to do that is we're going to talk about, we're going to follow through on a couple things that Jonathan used in God himself and in creation and after the fall and then in redemption, how we can understand what we're doing in work and how we're supposed to participate in it. And so the first thing I want to do is just build a background of God at work and when I say work, it's not going to be necessarily... God's work is unique unto itself. Um, it's not exactly like the work we do, but as we'll see, God is actually working. He's doing something. He has work that He's doing and He's continuing to do, and so we don't want to lose sight of that. Um, but it is, it is in many ways different. His work in your life, He's, he's working differently than ways that we could work. But we see like His work in creation... And so Genesis 1, uh, chapters 1 and 2, we see him doing things. He's creating, he's forming, he's shaping, he's calling out, he's doing work, he's putting things into place. He's actually doing work. And Genesis 2, 2 shows us a pattern of work and rest from work. That he's creating and then there's a break and then he starts a new project of work. So we see the days as they're marked out in creation. So just the first thing as we think about work is, is that God is at work. Right? And in so, we see him working in creation. The second is, is, when we try to put human terms to what God's doing, we end up with a couple things. So we have that he planted a garden. Right? He formed Adam. He shaped Eve. That Psalm 19.1 tells us that the universe and what we see is God's handiwork. Psalm 8.3 talks about work being on God's fingertips. Right? So we see... And when we try to describe what God is doing, we ourselves use it naturally that we describe it in terms of what we know as work, handiwork, doing things. So God separated the waters from the land. He made things. He formed things. He planted things. Things that we do oftentimes in our work all the time. And so we also see that God has continual work, that God didn't stop in creation, but that he continues to work. And so Psalm 121 tells us that he never slumbers or sleeps, that he 
continues to work and exercise his providence over his people. Psalm 104, 10 through 22, he continues to tend his garden. He continues to provide provision. So God continues to work. We see that also that God in Christ continues to work. Jesus says in John 9, 4 that he's doing the works of the one who sent him. So God's working through Christ in this world to do his work. And then he says that he continually do those. John 5.17 says the Father's still working. And since he's still working, that Jesus says, I'm still working. So work is not just God in heaven far away, but actually Jesus, when he comes here, we'll see later on that it should relieve us that Jesus was a carpenter. And he did work with his hands. And it wasn't foreign to him. So when we see things like when Scripture tells us that he was tempted in every way that he was, he was tempted at work. And he knows that, that it's not foreign to him. So we also, not only does God work and Jesus work, but his work tells us something. It tells us that it brings dignity, dignity and worth to the idea of work. Work is not a bad thing. Right? And we've got to defeat that idea that work is a bad thing. God works. And as such, he's given us, his people, the idea of work. It's not foreign or strange to him. So God's work tells us a couple other things as well that... It's foundational to understanding who He is. That if God is at work, and He's created us, and then given us work to do, that there's a relationship there that exists. God is worker, and humanity is worker. God's work is unique. It is a model for us. Work is good, and it makes us like God. No reason for us to be distracted from work and God and thinking that they're two separate things. Humanity alone bears the image and likeness of God and is clearly expressed in the call and ability to work. If in His image, if He's a worker, He's given to us His image, work is a part of that. We'll talk about the idea that work is not the product of the fall in just a minute. So God's work and the work He created for us was very good. There's nothing lacking there. So God's work tells us something And His working tells us something about our work. So the image of God in work. So when God creates, one of the things that He does is is He creates in His image and He puts that image upon us. And as such, there's a link between our work and His work. So when God gives the Ten Commandments, it's in Exodus 20. And He gets to keep the Sabbath holy. He gives us a pattern for work here in the temporal sense. And it's it says in verses 9 and 11 that just as God worked in a pattern of six days he worked and the seventh he rested, so should you. That you should work six days and rest the seventh day. Now, that is the law, and there's some contextual differences between our world and theirs. We get two days off, so that's nice. But the point being that God set a pattern up that we work and we rest. And why do we do it? Because he did. Now, his rest has a bigger, fuller explanation that we could go into, um, and that may be perhaps for another time, but what we do know is, is that God ceased working on the seventh day, and as such commands us to do the same thing. And so God and humanity then, in one sense, is, we're joint workers. Now what that doesn't mean is that God needs us per se, that His work is here and our work is here, and if we didn't do our job, then God couldn't be Himself, so... Don't accuse me of heresy. What I do mean is 
is that God, when He created the world, when He created the created order, and Jonathan talks about that, when He makes creation, He sets certain things into place. Some of that is work. So when we listen to what God tells Adam to do in the garden, He tells him to tend and to keep the garden. Tend and keep. Take care of the garden. Raise the fruits and vegetables. Tend the animals. Take care of those things. So He gave work in the garden. And so that was something that God originated and thought of and gave to Adam and Eve to do. That's part of what making sense of dominion or establishing dominion on this earth is. It's tasks that God sets before us that we're instructed to carry out and do. And so that's part of what he's asked us. And that's why I say it's a cooperative partnership. It's not a quality in person. We're not God. But human work is not possible without his provision. So under God, we work carrying out to fulfill what He's given us in the garden, to tend and keep and to establish dominion. So Psalm 127.1 gives us an example, and in that, the futility of work, the wastefulness of work is punished, but work is held up as something to do because it is what God has set before us. So in the created order... Just to finish this, that history begins before the fall. Oftentimes when we think about work particularly, we think it's a product of the fall. But actually God gave Adam and Eve things to do, to have dominion, to tend and to keep the garden, to worship and obey Him before the fall ever took place. So history of work begins before the fall. The fall alters the conditions for human life, and it perverses everything that God had declared good, including work. And even after the fall, there remains hope. This is the possibility that we're moving towards progress in our work, that we can find value there, and that we need to work as God intended us to work. So in the created order, when they tended the garden, it bore fruit. After that, in the fall, we see that the curse says that that work then will produce but it will also produce amongst thorn and thistle. So this is why I'm able to get all of my emails at work, but then it freezes and locks up, and I want to throw it out the window. So work doesn't stop. It doesn't cease to stop blessing, but it's also in the midst of thorn and thistle, or frozen in me calling it IT and begging for help. Right? We're stuck in those spots that it still produces, but it doesn't produce as we expect. It's non-rainy season coming. It's droughts. It's not producing the crop as it should. It's, in my garden, the deer eating all of my cantaloupe. It's those sorts of things that take place that it doesn't produce in the same way that it ought to, as it should have in the garden. God himself is doing a vast work, and he gives us work to do in the midst of that. So work in the garden was a blessing and not a curse. And it's not until work after the fall that we begin to see the idea that work was a curse and not blessed. Right? So it's for our good. It doesn't go away, but it shifts in Genesis 3, particularly verses 17 through 19, that work is no longer a blessing, no longer produces what we expect, but instead we get thorn and thistle in the place of the blessing and fruit. So it changed work. It didn't cancel it. The fall did not introduce work. It just simply altered what God had already declared as good what humanity had already been practicing. So Ecclesiastes 2.11 tells us that now we work oftentimes for futile things, things that 
do not matter what Ecclesiastes, if you've ever seen it, calls meaningless. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says that he works to acquire more goods and more things, and that at the end of all of those things, he's left with the idea that the acquiring of all these goods is meaningless. It's left him with nothing. And so that's the sort of work that we end up after the fall. That work becomes distasteful and burdensome. Work is subject to abuse. So we see either lazy people who do no work or we see people who are workaholics and never stop working. We see people who exploit the poor. We see people who are willing to take slaves to do their work instead of them doing it themselves. And so we have this large range of things that can take place in abuse. But work, just like us, thank God, can be redeemed. Work can be done in such a way that it's not just mindless toil and then we retire and then we die. There are actually things that we can do in the meantime. And so we want to see that work is, a, is given by God, that God's doing it, He gives it to us, but also that we have work as Christian calling. And so when we think about calling and understanding what am I called to in life, a lot of times we think of, only pastors or clergy members that were they're typically the ones that use the language of calling more often than not but God has calling if we think about it in the sense of vocation on all of our lives now I've listed some verses up here and there's no way that we're going to be able to go through all of them um, but I did want you to at least have them in case you you want to venture back through and there's a general calling that we understand that are things like salvation and godliness and discipleship all of us in this room have that calling, that we're called unto salvation. We're called to make disciples. We're called to be disciples ourselves. So we all share in that calling. So that's a biblical calling that's clear. A second one is, is we do see callings into religious service. And so when we look in, in Ephesians 4, 11, that there's a list of things that people can do, um, preaching and teaching and apostles and evangelists, these things that people are doing in religious service, that's different from ordinary handiwork, jobs that we're doing. So there are those things that take place, but we ask, is there a calling to ordinary jobs, jobs that aren't religious, so to speak? And I'll be honest, if you look throughout church history, oftentimes you'll see a mixed bag of ideas that, yes, there is in the earliest church, no, there's not, um, kind of in a long stretch when you have all the monks. And then post all of that, you have a recapturing that everyday jobs and everyday occupations matter to God and that God calls us to that. And one of the things we, I think that we can say that if we believe that God has created this world and as such set certain ways in which the world just operates, and if we think of things like I mentioned Romans 13, that he's given us governments to help govern the way that we live, that there are certain things and tasks in the way that society is ordered that God has done. And as such, for society to run and operate a certain way, we need people to do jobs and tasks. And so some of you may be an electrician. Why is that? Because all of our houses need electricity, right? Why can't that be a calling? Are you good at it? Are you passionate about it? Does it provide for your family? Are there things that are part of that that you can offer as worship unto God? The way you have a work ethic, other things. I've done electrical work, and in the summertime, it's rough. You know? 
maybe you work in a cubicle and you're trying to figure that out as well, but does it help just fill the way that the world is supposed to work? And it moves these things forward. And so we see that God's arranged society in a certain way and that we have to do that. So you have artists because we enjoy things like beauty and looking at those things. We have teachers. We have lawyers. We have doctors. We have electricians. We have directors of admissions. We have preachers. We have pastors. We have music ministers. We have people who can record video. We have people that can do just handiwork or brick masons or whatever it may be or auto mechanics, just whatever it may be. But God's called all of these things. And so when we look in the scriptures, we see Abraham called of God, right? Leave your home. What was his special job? The one he had, right? He was a shepherd. He tended his flock. He took all of his animals with him. And we see that that continued to expand because of God's blessing on his life. Right? Paul was a tent maker in the midst of his ministry and mission. And then Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, talks about how work, how important it is, and how it itself, the way that we go about our task, is a model to others for the gospel. That you go to work. So ordinary, or, um, ordinary occupations, they are fully within God's calling in life. We'll talk about trying to figure that out in a minute. But many of these occupations honor Him. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. I mentioned verse 17, but I want to look all the way through verse 24. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Which one should remain in the condition in which he was called? Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, them, let him remain with God. Now, oftentimes this verse is interpreted as saying that stay a Christian no matter where you are. And I do think that there's an element of that is true. But there's a parallel passage in Luke 3, and I won't read those verses, Luke 3, verses 12 through 14, which tells us very much of these same things, but instead it's talking about the life that God has assigned to us, your work, the place that you do, all the things that you do, that we spend most of our time at work. But it also speaks of which in our family. And what we see then is that within we, what we consider ordinary things, things that we're not always going to do forevermore, that there's a mixing of the spiritual within those ordinary things. And that in, the, in that mixture where those things are, that Christ has something to say about all of that, that the Bible speaks to it then because it's spiritual in nature. Your work is no longer just ordinary, but all of it then is spiritual. And so then how do we go to work? What's our human response to work? God's a worker. He's put it into creation after the fall. It's been tough to do. What do we do with it? Well, work is something more than a job. 
we ask questions like, who's doing this calling in my life? This is something God has called me to, that it's a means for me to worship the Lord, that the way that I work offers worship to Him, that God provides for us, that that paycheck makes a difference in how we're provided for, that there's significance of legitimate work, which means that there are some things that are not legitimate, Things like pornography or things leading unto drunkenness. Things that the Bible clearly says are sinful. Jobs participating in that are not legitimate. That we find contentment in work. That contentment is a mark of godliness. Just some practical things I put up there. That loyalty and excellence in work. I think oftentimes we can ask what sort of worship we're giving is how good a job are we doing? Are we marked at our workplaces as being the hardest workers? Or are we trying to get out of certain tasks because we don't want to do them? And so I gave a quick list of questions of excellence. Do you go the extra mile in getting the job done, even if no one else will know about it? We'll see why that matters in a minute. Do you attack every job with fervor? Do you follow through on your commitments? Do you stay current in your profession? Are you the best worker at your workplace? And if not, are you striving to be? What does Christ have to say about that? So, how do we go about discovering our calling and vocation in life? Well, I have to admit, there's no biblical silver bullet on this idea. I wish there was. I wish I could say, you're supposed to do. There's no biblical prescription for this task. This is why digging deep into scriptures, this is why prayer, this is why these things matter. Allowing the Holy Spirit to draw these things out in you. One of the things we need to do is, is we need to do away with the idea of there being secular jobs and sacred jobs. And I understand, I've already hinted at this a little bit, that if we as believers believe that God has us to all work in whatever capacity that it is, then all of it is sacred unto Him. And if we think through what sort of job does God not care about, what task do you do, right? If it's even down to eating and drinking, what vocation could you have that God doesn't care about? I would venture to say that there's none that He doesn't care about. Um, that He cares about all of them. And so we need the idea that if God has called us to these things, if you're good at these things and you're doing that and you find satisfaction in your job, worship and thank God. If you're having to work a job in which it's just a means of provision, guess what? Honor God in that. If you're looking for work, for provision, strive hard to worship God even in that search. But there is nothing secular or sacred now. We do want to address the idea of religious work. But in the Scriptures, that if we were to lay ordinary jobs, things like building a tabernacle alongside of being the priest and the prophet in the tabernacle, and we see that, that God is called to those equally and that He values those equally. You don't, get, you don't get more reward. You certainly don't get more pay for being a preacher. What you do get is harsher judgment. Right? James tells us that it's actually a harsher judgment for those who would be willing to teach. Right? So you get harsher punishment, but not necessarily extra blessing for it. So God doesn't view religious work any more so than He does. And actually, 
in the Ephesians 4 passage, he says that the real work of the ministry is done by ordinary workers. And it's a job of pastors and others to equip you to do those things. The ordinary worker who comes in and out, punches in 9 to 5, or second shift and third shift. At, I've worked it at the Walmart distribution center. So I put a quote up here. A guy by the name of Abraham Kuyper who lived in the late 19th century said, and Jonathan mentioned this as well, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. For Jesus was a carpenter, Paul a tent maker, David a shepherd, Abraham was a nomadic wandering shepherd. In the scriptures we have kings, prophets, fishermen, all doing the work of the Lord no matter their context. And not all of them left what they were doing. Many of them stayed doing exactly what they were doing and still did what the work, other things that the Lord called them to in terms of religious service. So we don't have to fear those things. And so how do we respond back to that? How do we know what God's called us to do? I think there are a couple different things. What's God gifted you at? If you're younger, are you good at something? Are you, are you, you have a proclivity towards a certain thing? Explore that. Push for it. Those of us who are older, we don't necessarily have as many options in that. But what are we most passionate about? What breaks our heart because it breaks the heart of God? What is it that matters to Him and that matters to us? And some of the ways that we answer those questions at least help us to try to figure out what we're supposed to do. But I can't say any more than your personal holiness, which includes reading the Scriptures and praying. And allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to those things. There's no magic bullet, no silver bullet for what you're supposed to do in life. We do have the general calls of salvation and discipleship and serving in the church. But what you do for your employment week in and week out, maybe what you're good at. Finding those things out. You may be a good manager. You may be a good electrician. I wasn't. I didn't stay in the field, as you can tell. So what's our human response to work then? What are our motives and goals for work? Provision, we said that. Human fulfillment, we find satisfaction in job well done. That's okay. It glorifies God, which means that we eliminate some occupations. I mentioned this already. We can't trade in the idols uh, of idolatry. That's mentioned exploitation and dishonesty. You have to be dishonest in your job on a consistent basis. That is not glorifying God. We have to eliminate that. We have to fight and work hard even in our jobs and even in our why do we go to work to fight against the gluttonous, consuming, short-sighted culture that we currently live in. Always seeking more and seeking excess so we need the promotion, we need the raise so that we can buy more. Christians ought to fight against that sort of thing. And so what are our motives and goals for work? Well, just... Simply put, we have things like Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. Work hard. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord. Or Ephesians 6, 5 through 7 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. As you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, 
Now, I know it's easy for me to say, go to work tomorrow, and it may be a really hard place and say, work unto the Lord. But if we really change our perspective that all of our work matters and God cares about that, then this is part of it. That we work unto the Lord, and if we find our satisfaction in God, that is our reward, then it makes work more bearable. And so we fight things like sluggardness at work. We don't be lazy. We don't just work when the boss comes around. But that we're actually striving to work hard, whatever our context is. And so we should have a work ethic that's honoring God. One that seeks to honor Him above all else. And so if we're working there, then it should please our bosses the way that we work. It should please our employees how we lead them at work. That if we're seeking to honor the Lord in all of these things, that this should be ready to go. We should resist things like idleness. I'll just read a verse from Proverbs. Um, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So Proverbs 6, 6-11 tells us that if you want to know how to avoid the poverty trap, it's hard work. It's working like the ant. So God is concerned about our hard work and gives us examples of that. We should find satisfaction in the work that we do, that God's called us to do. In Psalm 128, verses 1 through 2, he says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. It is provision. It is those things. And this is how that we go about finding these things. But our work ethic should stand out and separate us. We should be marked by excellence. Ecclesiastes 5, the final verses of that chapter in 18 and 19, tells us to accept the the lot and the toil and the life that God has given us, to find contentment there. And for those of us who have riches, enjoy them, but to not forsake that these are gifts from God. That God has given these things to us so that we can enjoy and find satisfaction in them. So just as a last thing, and we understand our Christian work ethic, Our work ethic is always tied to other people, whether it's other people that we work with or providing for our family or uh, what's next down the road for us. But also it follows the example of Christ when we go to work and we say that we we don't do these things to be served, but to serve. Do you have a position of service when you go to work? My hope is, is when I go to work every day that what can I do to serve those that that work for me, that I work for? How do I work these things back and forth? How do I serve to be like Christ in the midst of that? Philippians 2, verses 4 through 5, give us a great model of what that means and just telling us to not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but to consider others more important than ourselves. That's tough to do in a work environment. It's tough to do as a manager of people. How do I consider the people that work for me better than me? It ought to be that I am willing to do what they're doing. Or it may be that I have done that in the past or that I'm willing to work hard and that they see that and that transcends the things that I do, the things that you do, that you manage well, 
that you aren't practicing dishonesty and exploitation of workers. And really this service idea is at the center place of Christian morality. The way that, I, that we describe it at, at Southeastern in the Office of Admissions is that um, we pack parachutes. If you've ever been in the military service or you've been in the Navy and you get to the bottom of the ship where the not fancy work's going, it's not the fighter pilots, it's not those steering the ships, it's guys packing parachutes. And you never notice those guys, you never notice anything that they're doing until what? Somebody needs a parachute. And oftentimes that we try to view what we're doing is to say, how can I pack a person's parachute? And it might be they're yelling at me on the other side of the phone. They're not happy that their application's not done or I don't know, whatever it is. You might have to be a telemarketer to make ends meet. And I know you get lots of lovely conversations on the other end. Are you packing their parachutes? Are you willing to serve them even if it's never noticed of you? Because God knows and He's at work. He's doing for you what you didn't deserve. Jesus was willing to make Himself nothing, Philippians 2 tells us, to become nothing, to do for us what we wouldn't do for ourselves. We wouldn't obey the law. So He does that for us, and so He's our model of service. And so just kind of to cap this up, God's at work. Work has been here since the beginning of human history. He gave it to us in the garden, but because of the fall, it's messed up. And oftentimes we work to try to gain excess and more. And a lot of times God blesses the work that we do so that we can have more. But that we should be like Christ to serve others, to be the best and greatest workers. And that should be marked in all that we do. And we shouldn't seek for dishonest gain. And so... I think this illustration, I put a little interchange up on the board of how this matters. Um, and perspective makes everything in all of this. It says, uh, if you, uh, this is an interchange in a medieval stonemason's yard. What are you doing, a visitor asked the first stonemason. Well, I'm cutting a stone, the mason replied. The second stonemason replied, I'm earning my living. The third responded, I'm building a cathedral. And that makes all the difference in the world to a stonemason. Well, I'm just cutting rock. Or it's, this is, i got to get a paycheck. Or there's a grander, greater picture that's at the end of it. And so that perhaps menial task of cutting rock that you're doing actually has far more significance when it's put into the picture of God's eye and of God's kingdom. I'm not just cutting rock. I'm building a cathedral. We're part of something bigger than that, and our work does that. So... Just a couple concluding notes that our vision and our perspective do matter. Right? This isn't just, you know, think better about your job and it'll get better. But if you're, if you're digging deep with the Holy Spirit, it does change perspective. If you know that it is worship unto the Lord, it does make a difference. I used to, I used to work in delivering home furniture. That's how I put, us, put myself through seminary was I delivered home furniture. If you've ever done that, it can be sometimes really boring because nobody's buying furniture. Or it can be really hard. You can tear stuff up and be yelled at and do everything in between. And I used to have a really hard time trying to balance that and think I was preparing for something godly. And then I had an accountability partner who just said, what makes you think you can't do godly delivering furniture? <laughs> 
and really began to change the, change my mindset unto it, that the, my perspective and what I went into work to do every day made a vast difference. Because I was working unto the Lord and not just for a paycheck or not just because I needed to do it or it's something we're all supposed to do. So working unto the Lord does matter and your work does matter to God. That these things are true. And so whatever station you are, if you've got to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life, if you're in the middle of it or you're past that, and you now have wisdom to share with us about how to go through with that, wherever you are, it matters to God. And he has expectation and commands about how the gospel trickles out of that. And so let me just pray for each of us because work is the vocation that we're called to. We all have that task to work in some capacity. Sometimes it's for a paycheck and sometimes it's not. My wife works really hard and she's a stay-at-home mom and doesn't get paid for it. Except she gets stuck with me. That's not much, but... She works really hard. So this is the vocation that we're called to, these places of work. Let us do it with the honoring of the gospel and a work ethic that pleases the Lord in all that we do.